We began last week a somewhat longer section of Scripture. If you were looking at chapter 4 and, and were aware and kind of paying attention to what's going on, you would notice that 12 through 19 is, is really one somewhat longer section situated and, and focused on the subject of persecution. Now, I chose to break this in half to give us a little bit longer to, to focus on some smaller messages contained therein and really look at that. And so we journeyed through 12 through 14 last week and, and today, this morning, we will finish that section off uh, with verses 15 through 19. Let me read 15 through 19 and then we will walk through that together. Peter writes and says, but let, let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify in God that in that name he suffers. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will be the outcome of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. As we come into this section, we recognize that, that Peter has this, this somewhat surprising list of things that we're not to be guilty of. But one of the things contained therein that we need to make sure we're aware of is that he is presupposing the Christian not to be openly walking in rebellion and sin. This is just kind of this thing Peter supposes. He's openly supposing on the basis of their identity, on the basis, friend, of your identity, that if you claim Jesus, you would say, in, que- in response to my question, are you a Christian, you would say yes, that on the basis, there would be this assumption on my part, on Peter's part, that you're not openly walking in sin. Do we sin? Yes. There you go. That was, that was rhetorical. I know it's just kind of throwing you off. But yes, we all sin, and, and we feel compelled to be honest with that response. And some of our wives would poke our, their husbands and say, he sins more than I do. And he would say, rah, 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 rah. but because he wants lunch and dinner and he doesn't want to be kicked out of the bedroom, he would say, yes, she's right. And he lies again. <laughs> there you go. But Peter has this understanding that we are broke from our sin background. We're, we're, we're no longer in this. I mean, look, back in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he talked about the fact that we have suffered with Christ and that we're supposed to be armed in the same way of thinking. And look what he said in the end of verse 1. He said, uh, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So we get this understanding that in a very real sense, to walk in the reality of what it is to be a Christian is to be dead to sin. And so whenever we find ourselves engaged in sin, we, we look at things we shouldn't, we take something that doesn't belong to us, we, we say something that, that is not true. Whenever we engage in these behaviors, we are being disingenuous to the very nature of who we are. Do we sin? Yes. Is that who we are? No. This is the point he's making. This is the point he's making. The Apostle Paul in Romans 6 was asking this, this same question. He's dealing with, with sin, with religiosity, and, and what it is to be in union with God. And he said, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that make grace may abound? And then he lets out the strongest repudiation of that line of thought. He said, by no means. Christian, you have been set free 
from the penalty of sin, and in some sense, you have been set free from being readily, steadily, daily enslaved to sin. And so when you give yourself over to sin, you give yourself over to an already defeated foe. Jesus has defeated sin and death. And so when we sin, we're giving ourselves over to something other than Jesus. Paul had asked the question there at the end of verse 2 in Romans 6, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? It's a logical impossibility. But yet we find ourselves wrestling with this. Can I tell you today that if you find yourself today walking in the midst of sin, struggling with this, but you're keeping it inward, you're keeping it secret, you're not sharing it with those around you, confess your sins one to another, we read in 1 John. In community, the light of those around you shines into your life, and it allows you the strength from your brothers and sisters around you to walk up out of that sin. Look at this beautiful picture in 1 John of being completely cleansed of our sin. If you continue to walk in your sin in isolation, there's very little hope of that ever being true for you. You need to confess our sin. You need to join with those around here when I asked if they were sinners fell over themselves to say yes in some sense. But it's not this braggadocious sense. It's this sense of, yes, daily I need Jesus to bring cleansing in my heart. Daily I need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to help me walk according to what it is to be a Christian. So we get into verse 15, and look what he says here. But let none of you suffer, and then he lists out these things. So we recognize that within a Christian walk, you are going to suffer. Everybody say, I am going to suffer. You're going to suffer, but we recognize there are certain things you should not suffer as. The first one in this list, he says, don't suffer as a murderer. Don't suffer as a murderer. You know, Peter's day, uh, it's not that all these Christians were run around and they were the sect of those who put people to death, and so whereby Peter needed to enter into this, this section, this dialogue, this instruction to tell them, stop that. That's not who we are. No. And so, too, today, that we don't find ourselves given to murdering people. Anyone given to murdering? We have a police officer outside. No, none of us are really in this idea of being given to murdering. But he's writing this list, and he's headed somewhere with it. So he says, don't be guilty. Don't suffer as a murderer. He goes next. He says, don't suffer as a thief. Don't take things that belong to others. Don't pass things off as yours that originated with someone else. Don't steal by plagiarism. Don't be a thief. No, he, he wraps both of these things in an odd term. He says, don't suffer as an evildoer. And I really think the reason, the reason that he uses this word is to remind his audience of what he had said previously in 1 Peter 2.12. This is the, the direction that he goes with. In 2.12, he said, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers. They're being spoken of as evildoers. People are, are saying of these Christians, they are those who are engaged in evil actions and evil attitudes and, and perpetrating evil acts. And when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So what he was getting at there in, in, in verse 12 of chapter 2 is when somebody maligns you, says something about you that's not true, but yet you continue to do good things before them, you continue to live out the gospel, this is what you're doing. You are hopefully evangelizing them. 
And so the picture we see there in 2.12 is of you suffering, suffering well, enduring uh, the slings and the arrows of the words of all those that are cast upon you, and then they see you, even in the midst of all this stuff, staying the course. And what does it do? It changes their course. It changes their direction. They surrender and they give their lives to Jesus. That is the hope and the goal. Amen? So he says here, don't be a murderer, don't be a thief, don't be an evildoer. But then he has this odd pairing to this list of four. And he really sets it apart, and you can even see this in the English. Notice he says, as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, evildoer. and then he says, or as what? A meddler. Now we look at this and say, this is ridiculous. Is he talking about Miss Kravitz, the crazy old lady from next door? What's he talking about in this idea of, of meddling, of kind of getting involved in other people's business? There must be some deeper spiritual connection that Matt's going to unveil and really show us and we'll say, ah, this is what it is. And so it's not my mother-in-law. Oh, this is what it is. So it's not this crabby old person that's always digging through my trash. But in some sense, it is. Sometimes when you read scripture, there's no deeper penetrating scriptural meaning, no no type of this understanding that, that comes to the surface. Sometimes on the base of just what it says is, it is what it is. Don't be a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, and quit meddling in the affairs of those around you. It's simple, but it's penetrating. It's difficult because we find ourselves so incredibly preoccupied in the affairs of everybody around us, right? Why? When some sense, social media has given us this false sense of community. If your community is only a virtual one, then it is a false one. If your community is only this, this social fabric tied together on the interwebs, right? And so it is this false one, this fake one. Why? Because we share details that are not necessarily truly intimate. Intimate details are best shared face-to-face, not over the web. But what we find is when people overshare, when they say things that, oh my goodness, we're just like, did they really share that for everybody? Did they put it out there on the web for all to see for all eternity? What does it do? It invites us into their lives. And now we find ourselves moving and meddling in the affairs of their lives. Why? Because they have invited us to do so. So we find failure on two accounts. On one, it's the one who chronically overshares and shares details of their lives to invite others in. You are inviting people to meddle in your life and likely, likely, you'll be so frustrated when they do. When you round that corner, and they're not talking about you, they're not commenting on your feed, they're sending direct messages to people around you. Did you see what so-and-so said? Did you see what this was? Did you see what that was? You notice the pastor's wife hasn't posted very many pictures of him lately. Whoo, man, I wonder what's going on there. My kids are much better looking than am I. This is why she's not posting pictures of me. But we have this, this preoccupation, and I would tell you that it is decidedly sinful. Quit meddling in the affairs of those around you. If your primary reason for being invested in somebody else's life is a sense of positivity or enjoyment on your part, stop it. Stop it. I think the difficult part is when you have, you have older children and you begin to see them do what? You begin to see them make mistakes. And so it's out of really this sense of, I want to set them on this right course. I don't want to see them make mistakes. And so recognize a mistake and sin are two very different things. If you see your children, if you see those around you engaged in sinful behavior, speak up to them. Not to somebody else. 
Don't find, try and find a closer association. Don't try and find somebody else to go to them and say, hey, look, I've called 50 people. Nobody knows this person's sin well enough to talk to them. Friend, you did before you called those 50 people. Now all you've done is engage in gossip and stir up everybody around you into meddlesome ways. What is wrong with you? What is wrong with our hearts that we're so fractured and we're so wayward and we're so caught up in, in wanting to be invested and involved in everybody's lives around us to the point of discussion but not involvement? Stop discussing and get involved. But get involved to the point of being invested, sharing your wounds, your hurts with them, and inviting them into your life as well. Not primarily just getting involved because you think it's neat and delicate and different and a train wreck that you want to watch. It is the dumpster fire that you want to observe. Stop meddling. Our involvement in the lives of those around us does not call, does not give us the right to meddle in their affairs. In some sense, and one commentator went on to say this, the reason that some of you are ostracizing the body is because people around you find you annoying. This is an academic scholar. I'm surprised that passed the editor. Like he, he actually wrote, the reason that some face ostracism in the body is because those around them find them annoying. They're always wanting to know about the details and things of, of others' lives. That is annoying. Stop it. Let's move on. I'm going to start meddling. Okay, let's not move on. Let's just focus on it one more time. This idea of meddling, let me give you a, a positive course correction. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians wrote this word to those in Thessalonica. Chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. He said, aspire to live quietly. What an aspiration. Something we've completely missed. Something we've taken our minds off of. Aspire to live quietly. Here's the corrective. To mind your own affairs. Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. God would have you to walk quietly. God would have you to mind your own affairs and not the affairs of those around you. If they ask you for help, rend aid. If they don't, you can offer it, but don't overly invest yourself in the lives of those around you. Quit meddling. So he's told us all the ways wherein we should not suffer, all the ways wherein that we should not uh, have persecution in some sense come upon us. Don't kill people. Don't take stuff that's not belonging to you. Don't be this curmudgeoning old buzzard who's just an evil person. And leave other people alone, largely. That's kind of the first four. But then he comes into it. He says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Now this idea of Christian, we read it and we take this as some type of self-description. We take it in some sense as this kind of neither positive nor negative, almost a neutral description of who we are. But it, in Acts 11.26, when it's first used, of those in Antioch, it was used as, as this kind of crass phrase, this, this kind of belittling statement towards them. And so when it was used to describe those who followed Christ, they didn't mean it with this high, exalting praise. They meant it as this thing that should engender, should produce, should result in shame. And those who are described that way. He says, when somebody refers to you as a Christian, when somebody refers to you as a Christian, let them not be ashamed. Can I tell you the reason that most of us sense no shame is because nobody's referring to you as a Christian. 
The reason that most of us, in some sense, feel no shame for being a Christian is because there is no Christ-like association in the way that we live our lives outside of this place. You have a great Instagram game. You're killing it on Twitter, on Facebook. I mean, you are an amazing Christian. You have a terrific social presence. But those who see you in the workplace, I don't have a clue you're a Christian. Those who see you at Aldi, see you at Walmart, see you at concerts, see you at the bar, see you on the golf course, see you in all these places, they have no idea you're a Christian. So you are safe, friend. You never have to worry about being ashamed. Why? Because nobody knows anyway. What he's presupposing and what he's getting at in this is that our Christianity is so bold. It is such a declaration of who we are that we are not engineers, we are not homemakers, we are Christ followers. We are those primarily who take our identity from the Lamb. We are those who primarily take who we are, our life and our community in our neighborhood as being those who submit themselves in all things to Jesus. He says, inasmuch as this is who you are, you too will suffer, but don't be ashamed in your suffering. Can I tell you that one of the things we look around here, and we addressed this some last week, and so I don't want to retread this, but in some sense, we, we, we live, even those of us who live a bold, brash Christianity, we live in relative peace and endurance by those around us who endure our Christianity. But one of the great things about being a Christ follower is we have brothers and sisters the world over. We've got to quit thinking of Christianity as being this local Greenville, Hunt County manifestation of, of kind of what goes on and pull yourself into the broader umbrella of what it is to be globally a Christian and recognize that your brothers and sisters are giving of their lives in the farthest reaches of the world. Recognize in 2014... In 2014, there were 134 incidents of violence in India perpetrated just against Christians. Now, these are only recorded incidents. Recorded incidents. The following year, in 2015, there were 177. So you begin to see an, an escalation in violence directed at Christians in India. Now, the first six months of this year, there were already at 134 acts of violence perpetrated against Christians in India. They are on pace to double. They are on pace to double the recent year of violence directed at Christians. I want to give you in some sense what it is to be a bold Christian in a place where it is not easy. To help you have this, this global vision of Christianity whereby we're praying for our brothers and sisters in persecution and we're laying it upon our heart and say, God, would you call me from a place of relative ease to a place of incredible difficulty? God, would you place me there? Would you call me there? Would you unite my heart with them in prayer or would you put my boots on the ground to suffer alongside them shoulder to shoulder? A young pastor and his wife in India, engaged by religious fanatics who attacked their church in the midst of a gathering, came in, they take the husband, they take the wife, they cover them in gasoline and prepare to light them on fire. A husband and his pregnant wife, after being beaten, doused in gasoline, managed to escape. They get out, their kids are beaten, 
Every piece of electronic in the church is, is torn up. All the scriptures are burned. They burn the church. They show up at his house. They prepare to light his house on fire. They suffer well. They are not ashamed. Do not be ashamed. Do not be secret. Do not be hidden. Be bold. Be loving. And be compassionate. And when you suffer, return right back to the task of glorifying God. Return right back to this task because recognize it is not solely your faith that is dependent upon your action. It's not solely your faith that is dependent upon how you respond to suffering. As we saw in chapter 2 and verse 12, there are unbelievers watching you. And when they see you suffer and continue to do well, the hope, the desire of our hearts is for their salvation. You see, you recognize that the base of what Christianity is is an other-centered religion. It's an other-centered relationship whereby our hope is that our relationship with Jesus will be impactful in the lives of those around us. Amen? Don't be ashamed. Don't be hidden. But instead, he calls us the latter half of verse 16 to let him glorify in that name. So what they mean for shame, we take and we give God glory and honor on the basis of our humiliation, our termination, our loss of family and prestige. When we suffer for Jesus, it resounds to glory for him. This is a hard understanding for those of us who have not yet endured any suffering for being a Christian. So it calls us into this identity, let us not be ashamed, but let us all the more identify with what it is to be a Christian. Verse 17 gives us the why. Peter writes and says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? The gospel of God. So he's pitting this tension together. Judgment begins. This judgment is, is not God coming through and, and saying, uh, Ken did this right, Dee did this wrong, Joel did this right, Denise did this wrong. Well, I'm sorry, I inverted the order there. And so we recognize that as he goes through and as he's describing this, it's in some sense this picture of what Jesus describes in Matthew 25. You see, in Matthew 25, Jesus is describing this, this, this kind of end times judgment whereby God comes in and he says, these are with me, these are against me. Jesus speaks from the words of Matthew and it says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate one people from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, come. You are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So he turns to all those who have identified with the Lamb, and he beckons you, Come, all those on his right. And so this question resounds in their mind, and Jesus anticipates it, and, and, and he tells them why. He says, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. The righteous respond, and they say, Lord, effectively, when, when did we do these things? When did we see you as the prisoner, the hungry, the naked? When did we see you thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? 
The king responds and says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, so you did to me. As Christians, we need to seek out opportunities to engage the least of these. We've all seen, it's been all over the news, DFW reported it, the apartment nearby, no power, no water, no sewage. And from that, what did we see? We saw this terrific, organic collaboration of churches really centered around the question of what then can we do to help? And help put feet to faith. Help present an opportunity. And in presenting opportunity, it allows for opportunity to demonstrate the gospel. Remember what we always say, we demonstrate and communicate the gospel. It's not enough to communicate it and allow your life to invalidate it. It's not enough to demonstrate it and let people play this classic game of spiritual pantomime. We demonstrate and we communicate. the needy, to the marginalized, to those with no hope of of repayment, to those of no hope of letting people worship you, of look at you, of, of tag you, of write articles of you, of celebrate you. What do we want them to celebrate? We want them to celebrate the goodness of God through our demonstrations. So he turns to the righteous and he says, even as much as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Then he turns to all those on his left. turns to all those on his left and he says, depart from me, you cursed. Into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and for his angels, for I was hungry and you gave me no food, thirsty, you gave me no drink, stranger, you didn't welcome me, naked, you didn't clothe me, sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. And they answer this same type of incredulity. Lord, when did we do these things? (laughs) If we knew you were coming, certainly we would have helped out. You show up in your, in, in, on your steed, you show up undressed, you show up hungry, you show up thirsty. Surely we're going to help you out. And so they have this, this response being incredibly incredulous. He responds, he says, truly I say to you, as you did not do unto the least of these, so you did not do to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, to the, but to the righteous, towards eternal life. There is eternal significance at play in the judgment that begins with the household of God. In some sense, how you bear up underneath suffering is an indication of eternal significance for you. How you bear up underneath suffering indicates to which kingdom you belong, which household you belong. Matthew 25, 31 through 46 gives us an indication that the only household of lasting eternal value is the household, the kingdom of God. And 1 Peter 2 gives us an indication that he has made us, the church, into this household. He's made us into this household. Can I tell you, as the people of the church, if we would start abiding by, living by, demonstrating what it is to be among the household of God instead of the household of our culture, things would be radically different for us. Can't be a people whose hearts dwell in two houses can't be a people whose hearts are so massaged and moved and and cajoled by the world that when it comes to living in the household of God, our hearts don't beat for him. Our hearts beat for money. They beat for recognition. They beat for love. They beat to be done with singleness. And in that heartbeat that we pick up from the world, it is foreign to the heartbeat of God that beats for the disenfranchised, it beats for the outcast, 
It is other-centered heartbeat. It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God, but look here at the compassion detailed in verse 17. If it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel? Friend, if you identify with Christ and you don't obey the gospel, do you know what you're demonstrating to all those around you who are not followers of Jesus? That it is not true. That it is not important. Each and every opportunity you have to bear up underneath suffering, to do well, to demonstrate your allegiance to the household of God, communicates to the lost person around you the importance, the validity of the gospel. We demonstrate we communicate. What will become of the, those who do not obey the gospel? They will be cast out. Eternal fire, eternal separation. We never say this with a smile. We never say this with a sense of boasting. We say this with this sense of being forlorn and being broken. Why? For once were we. Ephesians 2, 1 Peter 4. We were lost. We were engaged in reckless behavior, sin, we were enslaved to it. How did we come out of it? The grace, the loving compassion of Jesus, it drew us out. It changed our hearts. We know how to reach lost people. How do we know that? For we formerly were lost as well. What's going to be the outcome of them? He goes on, he says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will be the outcome of the ungodly and the sinner? He's calling us to recognize the great difficulty whereby we uh, we stand, we endure in the midst of suffering. Now, Peter has, has described salvation not in terms of this, this event in time whereby you're a 7, 9, 90-year-old. Somebody says, do you want to believe in Jesus? And you say, yes. He's not talking about salvation in those terms. He's talking about salvation in the sense of that it is this thing which will come to us at Christ's return or our death. This has been the, the manner of communication by Peter throughout his letter. In chapter 1 and verse 5, he said that it is us who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Salvation, it saved you in the past, it saves you still, and it will save you on into eternity. But it is by great difficulty that you are being saved. This endurance of suffering, of not standing up and being ashamed, of not backing down and being quiet, but of living a bold, compassionate, loving display of Christianity to a world so desperately in need of a Savior. Verse 9 communicated the same thing to us. It says, at the end, we will obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And so he asks again, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become the outcome of the ungodly and the sinner? They will be lost. They will be lost. So we recognize that how we respond has not only eternal significance for us, but eternal significance for those around us. Look what he goes on to say. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Last week we went over this, and this is a difficult thing for us to receive and to accept. That in the midst of suffering, you recognize that your suffering is made for you. Your suffering, God recognizes your heart. He's given you strength to abide and to make it in the midst of this. He's given you friends around you. He has tailored your heart for the appropriate response to suffering. And in the midst of suffering, we recognize the difficult truth. The scripture reveals it here. It is God's will for you. It is hard to see in the middle of suffering. 
It's hard to see through the tears. It's hard to see through the wailing. It's hard to see in some sense from all the people around you that come in and say, it's gonna get better. It's gonna be okay. Can I cook for you? Can I clean for you? Can I, can I, can I help out? It's hard to see through all these things, all these well-intentioned, loving people coming in. It's hard to see that that's the will of God. Our heart's natural inclination in the midst of suffering is to look at this and to grow towards bitterness. Can we be honest with that this morning? God is good and loving, even in the midst of suffering. And the suffering that he has some of you walking through in your lives, don't seek to skirt it. Don't run from it but allow it to further unite your heart to God. And look what it calls us to here, to entrust our souls to a faithful creator. Just as God spoke the whole world into creation in Genesis 1, so too in the midst of suffering, he proves faithful, true, and all-powerful to undergird us, to support us in the midst of our suffering. But look at our responsibility here in the last bit. Just as he began in the first bit, pulling our attention to chapter 2 and verse 12, so too here he beckons our attention again. Up there it was evildoer. Here it is this idea of doing good. And 2.12, in the midst of suffering and persecution, we were called to do good deeds so that they may glorify God on the day of visitation. Here too, Christian, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulty, you are boldly proclaiming what you believe about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is he worth it? Is he worth it? Is he able to save you even in the midst of, of difficulty? Is he able to uphold you in the midst of difficulty? And I would submit to you that if your God is not able to, to hold you up in the midst of difficulty, then you worship, you follow a different God. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. The agent whereby all things cohere and stay together in God, even to your life. He upholds the star and the moons. He upholds your heart. He is near to all those who are brokenhearted, all those who suffer, all those who feel their life melting away, flesh torn from their bodies, tears erupting from their eyes. All the emotional anguish and physical pain, he can help you endure. He is making you lovely in the midst of it. And to an unbelieving world watching and observing, he is communicating the gospel. Would you allow your life to be the canvas whereby God paints the gospel through your suffering? Would you join me in praying for those who, even in the midst of suffering today, boldly proclaim the gospel? Why? So that through their good deeds, men and women's hearts may be turned to God. And as we read in chapter 2 and verse 12, that on the day of visitation, they might glorify and glory in God. Let that be our prayer. Let that be our action. Let me pray for us. Father God, we're so thankful for you this morning. God, I'm thankful that in your word in Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which you have prepared beforehand for us that we might walk in them. 
Father, I'm thankful that in Titus 2, recognize that your son Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all, unlaw- from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possessions. And God, that in that we are, we are <laughs> described as being those who are zealous for good works. God, help us not to be distracted by the sin in our lives, distracted by the sin of those around us. Help us not to be distracted by our own suffering. But God, help us to follow you, to follow you well, to submit ourselves to you in all things. God, you are good and you're worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our honor. So God, we pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to you, that their hearts would be strangely warmed, that they would be drawn to you, that by the power of your spirit you would draw them, that you would break them to their pride, to their sense of self-resolve and resilience, and that you would unite them to yourself through the shed blood of Jesus, him crucified, him resurrected, and you would draw them near by the power of your spirit. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.